0: Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 42 in the book of Hebrews and our final episode in this letter. We will discuss verses 17 through 25. I am Joel Harford and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we have finally made it to the end of this brief word of exhortation. What are we going to find here in these last few comments that we're going to discuss today?
1: Well, here we have uh, a beautiful summary um, of the the argument of the epistle in a a doxology that the author gives. And we also have a pointing for the second time in Hebrews 13 toward uh, leaders, toward the need to relate well to godly leaders. Um, And I think it's helpful for us to keep in mind what we've been saying. The theme of the entire book is that the the book was written to Jewish people who had made a profession of faith in Christ, but who are under immense pressure, societal pressure, religious pressure, economic pressure, uh, legal pressure, to turn their backs on Christ and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. So that pressure must have come in a Jewish context because no Romans or Greeks would have forced them to go back to Old Covenant Judaism. So these would be unbelieving Jewish leaders that were pressing on them. And they were being sorely tempted and there were lots of inducements. And so the author writes and he focuses primarily on Jesus Christ. And he begins with Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant. And so he is superior in every way to any human being that ever lived, but to all of the key figures of the Old Testament. So a superior mediator brought in a superior covenant. The new covenant is superior to the old one. It makes the old one obsolete. It fulfills the old covenant, and it makes it obsolete. And so a superior mediator brought in a superior covenant. And that superior covenant uh, involved full forgiveness of sins, a transformation of the inner nature, uh, with the heart of stone being removed and the heart of flesh being put in, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and a beautiful rich community of new covenant saints called the church to help you walk in a life of holiness. So that's the, the new covenant and it results therefore in a, in a new life, a uh, life of faith in Christ. And so because of that then, the author is strongly urging, begging, pleading, warning them. It's an epistle of warning not to turn their backs on Jesus. So now as we come to the end of this, we have the kind of closing arguments and some final greetings from the, from the author.
0: Yeah. Well, for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to read verses 17 through 25. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So my first question for you has to do with verse 17, where he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he gives the reason. Uh, What does it mean to obey and submit to your Christian leaders? And are there limits to this?
1: Well, there certainly are limits. And the Bible makes it plain that when the leaders uh, lead in a way that is contrary to the clear commands of Scripture, then we don't need to obey them. But the home base of Scripture is submission to God, God-ordained authority. There are so many verses that teach this. For example, in Romans 13, where it says that you must obey those that have been established in authority over you, for there is no uh, authority that exists except what has been established by God. So authority, in various settings, is the God-given right to command. Um, and so it's immediately uh, connected to obedience, um, the proper response to a God given command is obedience. And so we're told to um, submit to governing authorities like government, to kings and governors, etc. Peter writes about that. And Paul, of course, writes in Romans 13. So, governing authorities. And then we have these other relationships uh, in Ephesians where you have wives submitting to their husbands, children submitting to their parents slaves submitting to their masters, you have all of that. And so there's all different types of authority. But the authority here, I think, is church authority, uh, the authority of spiritual leaders, those that had led these people to Christ, let's say, those that were running the church spiritually, uh, those that were shepherding them, uh, as we'll talk more in the same verse, uh, who are watching out for their souls. So we're talking about church leaders here.
0: Now he gives a reason of why we should submit to our church leaders. What does he say?
1: Well, he says that we should submit to them because they are established by God to give an account for our lives, to give an account for us spiritually. And it says literally in the Greek, as I remember, they lose sleep over our souls. So they have a great deal of responsibility. And so that's why we need to submit to them because uh, it's uh, it's a significant calling to shepherd our souls.
0: These words that the author uses, he says, they will give an account, and you briefly mentioned that, but but that's kind of a weighty idea. What do you think it means that a pastor or an elder is going to have to give an account for one of the members of his parish?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of images you get in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, for example, when he was preaching to unbelieving Jews and they became hostile... He shook out his clothes in protest against them and said, "I'm clear of my responsibility. Your blood's on your own heads. I've warned you." So that that kind of image comes from the, uh, from sorry Ezekiel. Uh, where he says, look, if you see a sinner going off in, in danger and you don't say anything, his blood's on your head. But if you warn him, his blood's on his own head, you're clear of your responsibility. So the apostle Paul frequently talked like that in his ministry. He's like, I have an uh, an obligation to tell you the truth. I have an obligation to teach the word to you. And so on judgment day, we're taught very plainly in second Corinthians chapter five, we're going to have to give an account Uh, for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. Jesus told us we're going to have to give an account for every careless word that we've spoken. But one of the things we have to give an account uh, for are what what we would call stewardship matters, things that were entrusted to us. So for you and I, Joel, we are husbands, and so we're going to give an account for our marriages. We are parents, so we're going to give an account for our children. And then as church leaders, uh, church leaders need to give an account for people, church members, entrusted to their care, their spiritual condition. And so what we have to think of is that we have, we have to feed the flock, feed them the word. We have to leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for those that are wandering off. Uh, so you have to make an effort toward people who it seems are drifting away from Christ. You have to go find them, go get them, go persuade them to come back as best you can. So those are some of the ways that we're going to be called to account uh, for the flock that's entrusted to us. So this is a strong
0: case for church membership because you need to know who you're responsible to, you know, which sheep are yours that you need to leave the 99 and go out and follow or which ones you're supposed to take pains and lose sleep and pray over uh, versus maybe just a visitor who comes in, stays a few months and leaves.
1: Yeah, it's just a, it's, I think, uh, a limitation of responsibility. Paul talks about that. You know, he says, we will not venture to boast about anything except uh, of the field that God has entrusted to us, a field that reaches even to you. So in other words, he knew what his boundary was. So you have to, you, you, we're not omnicompetent. And so there's a limit to what we can do. And so uh, the idea of church membership then for me is significant. Now, keep in mind, I am free to do whatever I feel the Lord leading me to do toward a non-member. You know, it could be a non, non-member non brother or sister in Christ, and I can go over and give them marital counsel. I can warn them about a sin pattern I might see in their life. I, I can do all that. But I, I don't feel the same level of accountability, I would say, and uh, obligation that I would if they were a church member. Now, I think any brother or sister in Christ, if they providentially cross your purview, I think you're going to show some Christian love and compassion for them, but all of that to say membership does matter. And so the idea is it does give us a sense of focus. Um, So for me, I think the idea of accountability is one that could be overwhelmingly crushing. And be like, well, why would I ever want to do this? But fundamentally, we are accountable, each of us, to brothers and sisters in Christ anyway. So for me, it's just an increased accountability, and you have to be willing to step up and take that responsibility. But, yeah, it's a weighty weighty issue here to give an account on Judgment Day.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. The author says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there's the idea that there is a great advantage then if they do it with joy— and if, if you're causing your elders a lot of suffering, that's going to probably come back to bite you in the end.
1: Yeah, and this is really sad. There's a lot of dysfunctional churches that make life utterly miserable for their vocational, you know, for their pastors and people in full, full-time vocational ministry. Uh, honestly, when I came here to First Baptist Church Durham, there was a, a, a faction or a clique of people who seemed, you know, like they felt that it was their mission in life to limit the authority and power of a pastor and in some ways to make his life miserable until he left. And this was a regular pattern here in this church of running off godly men who were serving the church well and feeding them. And so it was really pretty sad. And so for them, their work was a burden, not a joy, and they made it so. And I, I know I'm speaking to people who are in those kinds of dysfunctional functional churches in many denominations as well who um, have probably unregenerate church members and who do make life miserable for their pastors. But this uh, verse is a specific warning against doing that, and it speaks just, it's to, your, it's to no advantage to you to do that. Uh, you really want pastors who are godly, they're holy, their consciences are clear, they're preaching the word, and they're happy in their work. They enjoy shepherding that flock. That would be a, a tremendous advantage. It's of no advantage to you if they, they consider their work a burden and not a joy. One final thing on verse
0: 17 is that he mentions the leaders in the plural form. He says, for they are keeping watch over your souls. You know, the New Testament presents a plurality of elders, which is what you've taught here for years. Can you explain that?
1: Sure. Um, the, the image, the idea, the concept here is that, that uh, God calls a group of godly men uh, called elders or overseers, um, generally not pastors, but the verb pastoring, the pastoral kind of verb like shepherding is, is used so then the, it goes over into noun form. They're all interchangeable. And the idea is of somebody called out to minister God's word and shepherd the flock, and we believe that happens in groups. Um, as it says in Titus chapter 1, the reason I left you in Crete was that you should appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you so and there are other verses like James 5 where it says if anyone is sick you should call the elders plural of the church and they will anoint him with oil and so there's this plurality and and so it's a a very beautiful uh, balanced structure Uh, for us as Baptists we have that plurality of of elders in a congregational context. And so there's a beautiful give and take between the congregation and the leaders. And the, the congregation is told here in this passage that we're looking at today in Hebrews thirteen seventeen to submit to their elders. But the elders also are put in place in, an, in a congregational setting by the church, voted in place individually uh, through elective processes. And then they're evaluated um, passively uh, day by day and year by year by their ministry of the word and their lifestyle to see that they're continuing to behave in a biblical fashion. And in that way we have a group of godly men uh, none of whom is more authoritative than any other. We all have equal authority and we come together and pray and, and lead the church and shepherd the flock and so it's beautiful. And I'll tell you this, this church First Baptist Durham though it had a dysfunctional beginning in terms of my ministry with that faction I mentioned who seem to delight in making life miserable for pastors. There's, I don't know of anybody like that now in this church. This church is made up of people who love God's word, who love this church, who love the elders, and who gladly submit to them. So it's a beautiful place to minister.
0: It is, it's a, it's a beautiful place to be ministered to. Yeah, praise so God. I love this church. Praise God. In verse 18, the author asks for prayer. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Why is it important that even a significant church leader like the author of Hebrews, that he asks prayer from
1: them? Well, I think It's just completely reasonable. Um, And and this ends up being, there's a couple of really key things that church members should be doing in reference to their leaders. Um, You know, earlier in this chapter, it says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and imitate them, imitate their life and then submit to them and obey them and pray for them. You know, there's a number of things here. So Paul frequently sought prayer. He asked prayer for boldness, for clarity in his preaching ministry. He asked uh, to be delivered from evil people that were attacking him, especially in Judea. And so he wanted people to join with him in his sufferings and their fight by praying to God for them, uh, to share with his celebrations and victories by praying. And so a godly leader will have a strong sense, not a weak sense, a strong sense of dependence on Christ and on God. He would seek more and more prayer. The more mature and the stronger he gets in the Lord, the more he wants people to pray for him, not the less. He feels he definitely needs prayer. And so this is an open example here. He says, I want you to pray for us. And there's a specific setting here. It seems like the the author may be in prison. Uh, You know, he says, pray that I may be restored to you soon. Uh, So he's going through some kind of trials. And that was very common for first century Christian leaders to be being persecuted more than anybody else. So he said, pray for us. Pray that, you know, I think always whenever you have trials, we should pray as Jesus prayed for Simon Peter, that their faith would not fail. So I think a Christian leader could say, would you please pray for me that my faith won't fail in this trial? It's like, wow, oh, I thought you're supposed to be a mighty leader. Well, I don't know about mighty. I am a leader. But fundamentally, my faith needs protection just like anybody else's, maybe more so because we're under satanic assault. So pray for us. But then he says, I want you to know my conscience is clear. There's no skeletons in my closet here. I'm not, I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm not presenting myself as a perfect person. But I am telling you, my conscience is clear, and I deeply desire to live an honorable life in every way. What more can you ask out of a godly Christian man?
0: Yeah, that's very needed for leadership. Yeah. Integrity and honor. Next you move to the doxology of verses twenty through twenty-one, and what a great doxology. I'll read it again. He says, Namely the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Mm. Now, boil this down for me in, in one sentence. What is he praying that God would do in them?
1: May God help you do the good works he has prepared for you to do, basically. it's like yeah. may, may God may, help you. May God help you do good works. I think that's that's what, if you look at it, he says, equip you. Uh, with everything uh, needed for doing his, uh, his will, everything good for doing, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. That's all good works. So the idea is that may he transform you within so that you may do the good works without. So keep it simple. May God transform you so that you can do good works that glorify him. Yeah, exactly. That's it. But he has some pretty potent subordinate clauses here, and it's, pretty worth, it. it's worth studying.
0: Well, we'll go through this now. He mentions the God of peace. God is frequently referred to as, as the God of peace. May the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet, Paul says in Romans. But then he says, Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Why, again, at the end of the letter, do you mention the resurrection of Jesus brought back from the dead for this audience?
1: Yeah, I think the God who raised Jesus from the dead will also do things in your life. Paul says that in Romans. He will work powerfully in you. So the same God who did this mighty miracle, which is the central miracle of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, may that same God work in you as well. And frankly, it's not much different than Ephesians one and two, where he says, you know, that you would know the hope to which he has called you, riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparably great power that's at work in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you now. He's raised you from the dead and now he's gonna work good works in you, Ephesians 2.10, which he has prepared in advance that you should walk in. It's almost the same concept here. Yeah, you've been raised to
0: new life, new creation. Yeah, live live the new covenant life.
1: Yeah, now do mighty good works for the glory of God.
0: The great shepherd of the sheep. This is a another big theme in scripture which frankly could use a whole podcast. Talk about Jesus as the shepherd.
1: Yeah. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's such a powerful image. And not just in Psalm 23, but many, many places in the Old Testament, we have this shepherding image.
0: And John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep.
1: So he is the great shepherd of the sheep here. So he's not just the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. And that's Jesus. And the fact is, look, these, these Jewish professors of faith in Christ are under immense pressure. The wolf is on the loose. And they need the good shepherd more than any, any other time. They need his protection. And so the idea that Christ has been raised from the dead and that his, he is not the hireling that cares nothing for the flock, bringing up the John 10 image. He's going to get out there and protect the flock. So just the, the God of peace, the same one who raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that's who you've got. You've got the God of peace, the powerful one, and then you've got this great shepherd who's looking over us.
0: And and he says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Let's talk one final time about the eternal nature of the new covenant. The old covenant was temporary. The new covenant never ends. So how is this helpful, for example, in understanding these Johnny-come-lately religions like Islam and Mormonism? Sure.
1: And this also feeds into what some people call covenant theology, which takes a very good insight, which is that the redeemed from the descendants of Adam from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, all those who, in the end, had their sins forgiven and will end up glorified in the new heaven, new earth, all of them, before Christ and after Christ, or during Christ even, all of them, everyone that gets redeemed, gets redeemed the same way, by one mechanism, put it that way, one could say by one covenant, and that is the covenant of salvation between the Father and the Son. Uh, made before the foundation of the world that if Jesus would die for the elect that the the, the Father would forgive their sins and welcome them. And so Abraham was justified by faith, Romans chapter 4. David was justified by faith, Romans chapter 4. All of the Old Testament saints were justified the same way. And so all sinners were saved by the blood of the eternal covenant. And so it's a timeless covenant, never changing. Now why by the blood? Because our sins would have turned God away from us completely so that he would have done nothing good for us. He would not have worked in us what is pleasing to him. He would, have not, would not have forgiven our sins or adopted us or given us any of the blessings of the new covenant were it not for the blood shed by Jesus Christ. So by the blood of this eternal covenant, this covenant made from before the foundation of the world, but in space and time, in the fullness of, of time, physical blood shed on a physical cross by a physical savior this is the blood of the eternal covenant by that blood may he do the things that the author wants which is to to work in you what is pleasing to him may he equip you for every good work and work in you what is pleasing to him by that blood may he do those good things you also mentioned all these johnny come lately religions and so clearly you know woven into your into your You know question is the concept that this this is like he says at the beginning the final word to the human race Christ is the final word in the past God spoke through the prophets at many times in various ways But this the final word to the human race is Jesus and so there is no no uh, Religion that comes after Jesus or any that came before him that has any validity um, apart from Christ there is no salvation. And so there's no need. We're not waiting for the rest of the story. We're not waiting for for the other shoe to drop or for the, some other aspect of, the. everything is finished. Like Jesus said when he died, it is finished. And so that's the blood of the eternal covenant.
0: Yeah, and this covenant is sufficient to carry us all the way to heaven.
1: Yeah, amen. I like, I love what the doxology says here, and it's so beautiful. May God, this powerful God, may he equip you, empower you, equip you, with, with everything good for doing his will. So the idea is if he doesn't fit you out for this, if he doesn't prepare you and work in you, give you the right mindset, give you the, the physicality needed to do good works, you won't do them. And so to God be the glory, like it says very plainly in John chapter three, everyone who, does, who walks by the light comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he did has been done through God. Yeah, Or as Isaiah said, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. And that's why rewards in heaven are really just another form of worshiping God, because God's going to get the full final glory for all of them. So may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him.
0: So it's a very God-centered approach for good works. Amen.
1: Amen. And I think this is something we can beautifully take uh, on our knees in praying for brothers and sisters in our own um, church, our local church, or in our family. Say, oh God, would you take this dear sister and would you please equip her with everything good for doing your will? And would you please work in her what is pleasing to you? Or you could take some, somebody who's straying into sin, someone who's struggling, maybe struggling in a sin pattern. And you can take this, this individual, this brother or sister in Christ, and, and bring them before God and say, Oh, God, would you please work what is pleasing to you in this person? Turn them away from lust and sin and evil. Turn them to what is holy and righteous and good. Would you work in them what is pleasing to you?
0: Yeah. Final greeting He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. <laughs> what do you make of that sentence? <laughs>
1: I think he's saying, and he does say it in mean, a few times, there's a lot more I could say about this. Like yeah. he talks about the, the elements of the Old Covenant. It's almost like sometimes we wish he'd given us more of those remarkable spiritual insights into the tabernacle in the Old Testament. We, we have a lot to learn. But he says just a brief word of exhortation.
0: Beautiful because it shows us just the depth of theology and the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God that uh, in heaven uh, time will not fail us. Amen. And we won't have to read the brief letters. We'll get the, we'll
1: get the real full, full thing. thing. Amen. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm working on that every day as I write this book on he- heaven. I'm excited about it, but there's no, no limitation of time, no limitation of interest on our part, no lim- limitation of intellectual ability to comprehend. We will be taught and taught and taught by God. But here he says it's a word of exhortation, that Paraclesis again, that like, like the word for the counselor, the comforter, the, the one who comes alongside. And it's a very broad word word that has to do with everything you need to rebuke you, correct you, instruct you, comfort you, give word of advice. It's it's a broad word. And so this this epistle is really a warning epistle, but also a comforting epistle. And it's an instructional epistle. All that that Greek word paraklesos means, it's very powerful. It's a brief word of that in your life, especially a word of warning, I think.
0: Yeah. What did the last three verses tell us just about greetings and life in the first century church, and then also, are there any keys to authorship here?
1: I don't know, I mean, Timothy was well known, uh, so uh, people are always trying to figure out who this author is, and I've long since left that behind, I have no idea. Um, so I just, I think the thing is that these epistles were frequently written in a network of relationships, and those relationships meant meant a lot. This is real stuff, this is real history, real human beings. So we have this proper noun, Timothy, here, and. Unlike all the other proper nouns like Melchizedek and Aaron and all that, this is a a contemporary individual. Um, But he was a, a man that God used mightily to build the church, working alongside his spiritual father, Paul, to plant the church. And apparently he'd been imprisoned, and he had now just recently been released and was going to be coming soon.
0: Do you have any final thoughts on just today's text or even the whole book of Hebrews before we end this podcast?
1: Well, it's been a marvelous study. There's always more that we could do, but I'm excited to go on to the next book and for us to keep studying, but uh, I think bottom line on Hebrews is, as I just said a moment ago, it is it is a word of warning, and we need to drink in the warnings. We need to take sin seriously. We need to take each other's sins seriously. We need to be involved in each other's lives and not drift away or turn away or fall away from Christ. Take apostasy seriously. Say, you know, if the Lord doesn't continue to pour out grace on me, I will most certainly apostatize. Not maybe, I will. And so God, through, Holy, through the Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus the Mediator, is going to continue to pour on me everything needed for my final salvation. But for my part, I have to take that seriously and drink in those means of grace so that I keep myself safe from sin. Yeah. And the book of Hebrews is definitely a means of grace for us. Amen. Well, that was episode 42
0: in the book of Hebrews. This completes the Hebrews podcast from Two Journeys. It is our prayer that this has been a means of grace in your life to build you up spiritually and help you grow in the knowledge and love of God. It is our conviction that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So thank you for listening to Andy and I as we discuss the book of Hebrews.
1: And may God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes